Thank you, Chad. Good evening, church. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3? It's been a little while since we've been in 1 John. We took a break for Advent and then our Gospel Priority Series in January. Let me give you a real quick refresher on kind of the big idea of the book. One thing you've got to love about the Apostle John is that he's, he doesn't leave you guessing about the reason for his writing. In his gospel, he writes that he's, he's written so that we may believe and so have life in Jesus' name. Uh, and if you were to turn over to chapter 5, verse 13 of this letter, 1 John, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I think in short, if we wanted to encapsulate the big idea of the book of 1 John, we, we could just call it what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian. And that has implications and importance uh, really wherever you are in relationship to uh, Christianity. If you're a, a skeptic or you're investigating Christianity, um, it, it shows you what benefits are yours in Jesus Christ if you receive him by faith and what call he puts on your life, what the cost is of being a Christian. Uh, if you're a believer, obviously one of the purposes it serves is to assure you that you have salvation, to tell you uh, and give you a certain uh, hope and faith that you, that you know Christ, that you belong to him and that he loves you. Uh, and then a final thing that it does is by holding up what it means to be a Christian it can also serve to convict us. It essentially says, this is what, when you profess Christ, this is what you say you believe. Does your life match this? And so wherever we are in relationship to the faith, uh, this letter and this passage in particular has something important to say to us. So let's read that and find out what it is. First John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Holy Spirit, we ask, would you open the eyes of our hearts to know and understand this passage and to see Jesus clearly so that we might respond to him as we should. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Early on in my wife and I, uh, in our marriage, we were invited to join a small group of other newly married couples, and we were studying a book together on marriage. Uh, and it was a helpful group to be a, a part of, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend the book, but uh, there was at least one helpful takeaway from it, as there are with most things. And it was something that the author called uh, the crazy cycle. Maybe you've heard of this. It's called the crazy cycle. 
And all he meant to uh, illustrate by this, and by the way, this is true even if you're not married. This is true in all relationships, this crazy cycle he's describing. And what he's describing is that when you are in relationship with another person and it happens that one of the people does something uh, insensitive um, or hurtful or sinful against the other person, our, our knee-jerk tendency, so to speak, is to respond in kind, to return hurt with hurt or uh, sin with sin. And, of course, you can see where this is going. Uh, when this person hurts and this re- person responds with hurt, then this person is going to respond back with hurt, and on and on we go in this crazy cycle. And the separation between the two people becomes greater and greater as a result of what started out as a a small conflict. And he says the only way that you can interrupt this crazy cycle, arrest it and get yourself back, back on track is for one of the people to take a step back and rather than responding to hurt and, uh, and, and sin with hurt and sin is to assure the other person that you love them, that you hear them, that you understand them, that you forgive them. It's rather than responding as we would in our, in our flesh, in our knee-jerk response, it's to respond with love and to re- reassure them that we love them. That's the heart of the issue, isn't it? When we've been hurt by another person, we're questioning in our hearts, does this person even really love me? Do they really even care about me? Because if they did, they wouldn't have acted this way. I share that because I think that there's a similar dynamic that we often experience in our relationship with God. When we sin uh, in a particular way, maybe in a way that we tend to struggle with quite a bit, uh, or when we fail to do something that we know we should have done, we start to feel this weight of guilt and shame. And in that guilt and shame, our typical response is to pull away from God because we know God must be displeased with me for this. We don't read our Bibles when we're in those kind of seasons because it feels hypocritical. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't spend time with other Christians because that feels kind of hypocritical too. And we're sure that they certainly don't struggle with this the way that we do. We certainly don't look for opportunities to serve in the church. We kind of put ourselves in this, this probationary period, so to speak. Or I really ought to go for a little while without committing this sin again. Or I ought to do some things that I know that I should do for a little while. And then I'll approach God and I'll, I'll ask for his forgiveness. And then I'll, I'll ask him for the things that I need. And the only way... Uh, that that crazy cycle is interrupted and arrested is for Jesus to pursue us and reassure us that he loves us. So that rather than pulling away from him and spiraling into this sin, which, by the way, when we're further away from God and distant from God, we're more prone to sin all the more, and it sends us further into this cycle. But Jesus pursues us in love to reassure us that we are his and that he loves us and to restore that closeness with him. God wants you to have assurance that he loves you 
and that you belong to Him. And because He does, we must abide in Him. God wants you to know that He loves you and that you belong to Him, so we must abide in Him. There's, there's a couple different ways. And He says, I, don't, I not only want you to have reassurance that I love you, I actually want you to have confidence before me in prayer such that you can ask boldly for things. That is, you're not just getting in the door. I'm not just letting you in the back door and, and kind of looking over your sin. I actually want you to have confidence before me that I love you, that I'm for you, and that I'm working in your life and through your life. So first, reassurance in verses 19 through 20. We must abide in Christ because we, he assures us that we are his. John starts off here by saying, by this we shall know that we are the truth and reassure our heart before him. And so when he says by this, he's referring to what comes before. It's been a little while since we've read it. So look with me at verses 16 through 18. This is what John is referring to. He says, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What John is saying is that there is a direct connection between our relationship with each other and our assurance that we belong to God. There's a direct connection between our relationship with each other and the assurance in our hearts that we belong to God. Now, we're accustomed to talking about this dynamic that the vertical relationship we have with God determines the horizontal relationship that we have with each other. makes good sense. And what John is saying is that the reverse is also true here, that we can look at our horizontal relationships with each other, and that can serve to give us reassurance that we belong to God. That can serve to give us reassurance that we belong to God. To God. That makes good sense for a couple of different reasons. One of those is that the Apostle Paul, when he uses several different metaphors for the church, and one is the body of Christ. So when you become a Christian, you become united to Christ. And, and all the Christians together constitute the body of Christ. And so if you find yourself at odds with other members of the body of Christ, it should give you pause And give you concern as to whether or not you belong to Christ. On the other hand, if you're living in in unity and peace and harmony, harmony with members of the body of Christ, it should give you great assurance that you belong to Christ, that you are His, and that He's enfolded you into His community. Another thing that John has said to us in chapter 2 is that, uh, we'll we'll read it together, you can flip back to chapter 2, verse 6. It says, if we... Claim, uh, whoever says he abides in him, that is Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And of course, the way that Jesus walked, Mark tells us, is not to, he didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. It's to lay our lives down, as he's just said in the previous verses, for one another. So what about us? Maybe the question for us is, as we survey the relationships in our lives, we might ask ourselves, do I have a lot of relational drama 
in my life? Am I constantly coming into conflict with other people? And when I do, am I more prone to pursue restoration and peace? Or am I more prone to to simply burn bridges and move on? We might ask ourselves, do we have needy people in our lives? Are there people who really need things from us that we can serve with our lives? More than that, are we pursuing other people and asking what they need, looking for the needs of others and seeking to see how God might use us to meet those needs? John says that living in this way, not in uh, word or talk, but in deed and truth among other Christians, serves to reassure us that we belong to Christ. Now, if you're like me, you consider that and you're immediately convicted. Remember I said one of the ways that this letter can serve is to convict us as Christians where our lives don't match our profession of faith. And perhaps knowing that, John immediately moves on to show us how we might gain reassurance if this external measure of our faith seems to be lacking. He says, uh, well, the first thing we ought to do is the counterintuitive thing. And that is rather than pulling away from God because we feel we've fallen short, it is to repent. So the the very first practical step in abiding in Christ and so receiving this reassurance is rather than pulling away when we feel guilt and shame, is doing the counterintuitive thing and going directly to God repenting of our sin and asking for forgiveness. And this is why. This is why we can do this. It's because of God's knowledge. Something that is very comforting for me here is that John writes, he says, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. Uh, He says, whenever, uh, and he uses the word reassure, whenever we need reassurance. What John is saying is that this lack of assurance, this feeling that we don't measure up, it's a typical experience for a Christian. It's a typical experience for a Christian. Our hearts often condemn us, don't they? We often live with a sense of guilt and shame with us. But he also says, you shouldn't always trust your heart. Your heart is prone to condemn you But you shouldn't always trust your heart. Why? Because God is greater than your heart. And God knows everything. You shouldn't always trust your heart when it condemns you. Because God is greater than your heart. And God knows everything. I believe it was Blaise Pascal who once wrote that if people had access to all of our thoughts, we wouldn't have a friend in the world. What John is telling us here is that God truly does have access to all of our thoughts, all of our motives, all of our actions. And yet he loves us even still. Even more than that, he pursues us to reassure us that he loves us when we're separated from us. In other words, John is saying that God knows us even better than we know ourselves. And yet he loves us even better than we love ourselves. God knows you even deeper more profoundly than you know yourself in all your sin and all your shortcomings and all your failings. And yet he, he loves you still and he pursues you in love to reassure you 
that he loves you because of Jesus Christ. This is the God that we serve. He's not a one, not a God who, who stands back and crosses his arms and waits for us to kind of work it out and get it before he shows us love. No, he shows us love first to melt our hearts so that we reflexively ask, what can I do that pleases you? How can I serve you? And how can I serve my brothers and sisters? And so you see the way that these have a, 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 a direct connection on each other. When God reassures us with his love, we're more prone to extend love to one another, which then only serves to reassure us and reinforce the fact that we belong to God. God wants us so much to know. He wants us so much to have reassurance that we belong to him, that he has created this reality of his love and this community to enfold you into his arms, to reassure you that you're his and that he loves you. So God's reassurance through God's people and his knowledge. But he said that we not only have reassurance, but confidence. We're not only just assured that he loves us, but we have confidence before him in prayer. John writes, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And then we come across a bit of a perplexing verse in verse 22. And he says, and whatever we ask, we receive for him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, at first glance, this seems like a pretty good uh, support verse for uh, the so-called prosperity gospel, right? John is saying, you keep God's commandments and you do what pleases him. He'll give you whatever you ask for. Pretty simple. Here's, I want to give you a few reasons why I believe that according to the greater context and what we know about God and his word, that this is not uh, what John is saying. N- number one, the big idea of this passage is abiding in Christ. It's abiding in Christ. And so if you are abiding in Christ, that is directly connected to him, living close to him, your will will begin to align with God's will. You will want what God wants and you will want the things around you to happen and be so ordered that they please God. And so if your will is aligned with God's and you're asking for the thing that, things that God loves, then of course he would grant the things that you ask for. Here's another reason uh, Another way we ought to think about this verse. A little bit later on in verse 23, John says, And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So it's actually a command to believe in Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that this belief in Jesus Christ has to put no confidence in our own works before God. And so there's never a situation in which we can go to God if we truly put our belief in Jesus Christ and say, you owe me because I I kept your commandments and I did what pleases you. If your belief is in Jesus Christ, there's never a situation where you can go to God and say that he owes you because you've kept commandments or you've done what pleases him. It's impossible to profess genuine faith and confidence in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and then turn right around and ask for something selfish and self-focused. So God 
transforms and, and redirects our hearts in that way. Here's the final thing, reason that this is not a uh, ask whatever you want and, and get what you want if you've pleased God. If we really lived that way, if that was really true, then if we're honest with ourselves, none of us would get anything at all. Because none of us perfectly keeps God's commandments and does what pleases Him. And so rather than this being a kind of works righteousness by which we can pray and get what we want, this should actually make us marvel even more at the grace of God that we get anything at all. And so it drives us deeper into that belief in Jesus Christ for our confidence before God so that we can go and ask Him for the things that are on our hearts. So God, we, and we experience this in, in any relationship that we have, don't we? Don't you know those relationships where, where you love someone deeply and you know that person loves you? And so you feel this kind of this confidence and this freedom to ask them for, for favors or for help or for prayer or to share things with them. But if a relationship is severed and you're at odds with a person, you're very slow and hesitant. You won't go to them and ask them for something. That's what John is getting at here. He's, he's talking about this closeness, this abiding in Jesus Christ, such that we are close to God in Jesus Christ. And there's this relationship of love and assurance and confidence that we can ask Him for the things that we need and that we desire because we've been aligned according to His will. So another external measure, and then finally another internal one. John says that we are given confidence that we belong to God and that He loves us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 24, And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit that He gives us, that He's given to us. When we talk about how the, the, the Trinity, the three-person God accomplishes our salvation. We talk about God the Father planning our salvation, Jesus accomplishing our salvation, and the Holy Spirit applying it to our hearts, opening our, the eyes of our hearts to give us faith so that we understand and, and respond in faith to Jesus. And that applying work of the Holy Spirit happens at our conversion, but it actually continues to to happen throughout our lives. We continue, need, continue to need this applying assurance of the Holy Spirit. Here are just a few ways that Scripture talks about His ministry to our hearts. John 16, when Jesus was leaving the disciples, He said, the, the Holy Spirit will come and He will remind you of everything that I have taught you. Ephesians 1 says that Holy, the Holy Spirit serves as a, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance that we have in heaven. Romans 8 says that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of of God. And then this beautiful picture that we have in Romans 5 where it says that the Holy Spirit pours the Father's love into our hearts. God wants you so much to not only be reassured that you belong to Him but have confidence before Him in prayer that He is drawn as close as He possibly can to you in the Holy Spirit. Uh, another thing that my wife and I did when we uh, were somewhat newly married is the, the church that we were previously at uh, partnered with a, an adoption uh, foster care agency, excuse me, foster care agency. 
And uh, they wanted to uh, set the parents up, these foster parents up for success in what is inevitably a very challenging work. And so they would surround them with this kind of community. They would, they would give them a prayer partner, someone who was praying directly for them on a regular basis, uh, a babysitter, someone who could come over and give them date nights so they could get away for time, uh, and then respite care parents. And this is for when they were going away for maybe a whole weekend or, or a week at a time. And so uh, we went through the process and applied and we became respite care parents for some friends of ours who were becoming foster care parents. And eventually uh, they got a placement. They got uh, siblings, uh, a little boy, three years old, and his sister who was one. And uh, the little boy, we'll just call him Roe, because that's what he went by, although it had no connection to his actual name. I'm not sure why he went by that. Uh, but Roe was this, could be, could be this delightful little boy, this huge smile. He was full of energy, um, loved to play. The, the, everyone in the church just loved to see Roe when he came to church. Roe could also be very challenging at times. There were times when he could just get out of control. And some of you are thinking, how's that any different from my three-year-old? Uh, and I would agree with that. Uh, the difference with Roe uh, was that there was almost nothing you could do to, to calm him down. Nothing you could do to kind of rein him in, get him back, calm down, and kind of instruct him and correct him. Couldn't put him in time out because he would just run away. Couldn't put him in his room and close the door and give him some quiet time and some space because he would become a, a danger to himself. And so just before this, uh, this week that we were going to do respite care, my friend told me, he said, the only thing that I have learned that works with Roe is that I take him and I pick him up and I, I squeeze him tight like a, like a little baby, like, like you hold an infant. And he squirms and he tries to get away from me. He says, but I hold him tight and I just remind him it's okay. We love you. It's okay, Ro. We love you. He said, eventually, you could feel his body kind of relax. He would get over that little spell, and then the, the smile would return to his face. I think this is a picture of what God does for us. When we get caught in this crazy cycle of this guilt and this shame and we pull away from God and we want nothing to do with God or God's people or serving in God's church because we feel like hypocrites and we feel guilt and shame. God gives us the knowledge that I, He knows everything and He still loves us. He surrounds us by the body of Christ and He indwells us. He draws as close as He possibly can to us in the Holy Spirit to hold us tight to remind us, I love you. You're mine. You belong to me. It's okay. Our response then is to abide in Christ. When we feel that guilt, that shame that tempts us to pull away, run to Christ. Confess your sin and receive that love that he assures you of. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace to us that you pursue us in love even at times when we show that we want nothing to do with you.
pray that for myself and my brothers and sisters here that you would melt our hearts with that love such that we would be people who rather than reflexively pull away would reflexively run to you and so grow in our love for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.